Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. listeners now it's sort of a commonplace but whenever we've not recorded in a while i'm intensely nervous really yeah. you're nervous right know. now very this is this is my nervous face this is me crossing my arms in nervousness wow you don't usually acknowledge nervousness emotions <laughs> emotions of any sort well maybe look i'll i'll let's get right out of the Whatever the expression is, let's get right out of the gates, the races, I yeah. don't know, horses, yeah, and metaphors of that nature. Um, well, first of all, it's good to be back, and um, you know, thanks to everyone who's uh, listening in and rejoining us after our little summer break. Um, both of us were out of the country together. Um, sometimes in the yeah, sometimes in the same place. Um, and um, big life changes too, but maybe those will come up in um, in a future episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think your followers on Twitter know of your life changes, but I True. think that's something. That's a that's a narrative we can uh, we can unspool over the course yes, of many indeed. episodes. I think. Um, yeah. So look, the thing that I'm I'm worked up right now. Are you? I read I read the long. McKay Coppins' profile of Mitt Romney in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Even if you don't like politics, even if you don't care about Mitt Romney, like this is an incredible read. And I just, I felt myself getting worked up and angry and frustrated at just how cowardly Republican politicians are. And obviously, it's a sympathetic portrayal of Mitt Romney as like the last, the last good Republican, which right. maybe would have been another potential title for the biography that the the piece is excerpted excer excerpted from. But I think it does get at a lot of the fundamental wisdom of crowds questions, like how does one live well? How does one live a good life? And that includes politics, includes one's personal life, what you prioritize and what you don't. And it made me, and I'm someone who doesn't like the hyperbole of American democracy is about to die and all that sort of thing, and I still don't. And I don't like to cast the GOP as being evil. Republicans are not evil. Republican politicians are not evil, even the ones you hate the most. Well, maybe except for Ted Cruz. But putting that aside, evil you know, Ted it's Cruz. just sort of like, it tests my own commitment to democracy. Because, you know, one of my big things is we respect the democratic outcomes we get no matter how bad they are. But then I read something like this 
that describes just how corrupted the Republican Party is. And it does make me fear for the future of America if Donald Trump wins in 2024. It does make it feel like the the stakes are enormous and overwhelming. And maybe that's really at the heart of my work over these past few years is how how do we test our own commitment to the democratic idea? Where do we draw the line? And I'm just a human being like everyone else who's flawed and I can't always live up to my principles. And maybe it could be argued you shouldn't always live up to your principles. Sometimes you have to compromise them um, in the service of something greater. Um, But I think that's kind of what's on my mind. I don't know. Feel free to do with that what you will. Yeah. Well, look, um, my my connection dropped out a bit, but I I know since it's recording on both ends, it won't matter. But you came back and said something about being the best person you can be, or something like that, in in reference to to Mitt Romney. And so <laughs> so, you know, I I, I was just uh, joking with some friends. I haven't read the latest David Brooks, but he has a has a line in there that says, "We all struggle to be the best version of ourselves we can be." When talking about <laughs> Mitt Romney, and and I had like. Me and my friends had like a, a good round mocking that a little bit. So I'll just start with that because, uh, you know, um, I don't know. You know, I, I think, as you point out, I think it's a, you know, McKay Coppins wrote a, a Mitt Romney clearly gave Coppins a, a huge amount of access. And he talks about it in the piece, um, gave him like a bunch of his notes and everything. And, and obviously, you know, once you're a biographer like that, you're you sort of come on side and, and, you know, you're portraying as you said, like the best version of, of someone as they can be. And, and, uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not casting, casting aspersions against Mitt Romney. Uh, I, I, I do suspect that he is, uh, uh, you know, generally a decent man. So I, I, I'm not coming out swinging on that. I'm just sort of about this sort of, you know, Brooksian Hamidian, uh, self-improvement, uh, thing is what I'm swinging at here. Like trying to be the best we can, but that's it's not fair. I, I felt like after reading it, that I wanted to be more like Mitt Romney, that Mitt Romney was showing us how to live a better life, that yeah. he does feel accountable to God. He actually thinks about what will happen when he dies and he has to face God in judgment. Like, will you be able to do that? Which is a question I think a lot of us avoid, at least the one, even those of us who believe in God, obviously this wouldn't apply to people um, who don't believe in God. But, um, you know, it just, because I've been thinking about these bigger questions increasingly over the past year, it really connected with me. Like, what is this all about? What is the kind of legacy we want to leave? What really matters? And, you know, are we willing to, yeah, these people who want to stay in the Senate forever, they're not able yeah. to retire, and we'll get to that. But you know, I, I, but that, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that's what jumped out at me more than anything else. You know, I mean, like, uh, yeah, the 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 duplicity of of uh, of Republicans, you know, roundly mocking Trump behind his back, uh, you know, in almost every context, and then uh, you know, quietly but almost you know, invidiously praising Romney for saying out loud what basically they say behind closed doors um that's all true but to me the 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 part that jumped out more 
than uh, anything about um, that kind of hypocrisy and rot that is specific to the Republican Party was this description of the Senate as like a decrepit retirement home um, where, you know, um, power hungry old men just congregate. And I, I, I don't have the article in front of me, but the, there was just a sentence in there, something along the lines of um, uh, how, uh, you know, to basically lose the seat would be to lose their lives because their entire lives are tied up with, with quote unquote serving, but actually just basically being in, in this position. And then just delightful descriptions of, you know, these, these old weird men at the gym, <laughs> uh, mm. you know, working out, uh, yeah, just, it's a retirement home. And, and, you know, it's, it's true that the, the, the focus of the piece is, uh, on Republicans and Trump and, and that hypocrisy there. But, uh, there's a, it felt also just sort of a kind of bigger rot. And, and that's where, you know, again, I've never served uh, in politics and I've not worked on the Hill or anything like that. So I, I do, I do want to sort of put that out there that it's hard for me to judge, you know, where the rot came in. But I just, you know, while Trump did have a profound effect on politics and on the Republican Party, I also maybe I'm a little suspicious at the idea that Romney rolls into the Senate and finds it completely incomprehensible, like unrecognizable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like this is, this is not like this was a, uh, an honorable and august body of, of Patriots and the rest of it. And then all of a sudden after Trump, it just degenerated into this. Like, I mean, I feel like we've been on this glide path for a while. And so if there's anything that's maybe what the, the, what I found striking and valuable about the piece was bringing the element of the broader rot of the institution into high relief and the Republican Party. Uh, but what I found less sort of, I guess, um, convincing was this idea that this is something, you know, completely new. And, and, and I found it that a little bit much, uh, you know, yeah. like Mitt Romney is like gambling in the casino. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> Well, let, anyway. me give a quote, let me give a quote from the piece just to give some color to what um, what you're talking about, Demir. Okay, here's um, McKay Coppins describing how, you know, Romney's revelations in the Senate about just how old and bad it is. Okay, quote, and, he's, and Romney sensed that many of his colleagues attached an enormous psychic currency to their position that they would do almost anything to keep it. And then here's a direct quote from Romney. Most of us have gone out and tried playing golf for a week, and it was like, okay, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> McKay Coppins returns and says, interprets this, job preservation in this context became almost existential. Retirement was death. The men and women of the Senate might not need their government salary to survive, but they needed the stimulation, the sense of relevance, the power. And I think there's just, maybe that that's obvious, you know, but it's also, I think, 
it's like an I think a somewhat profound insight about this particular group of people that this is really all or most of what they have to live for and without it they would likely fall into existential angst and depression and feel absolutely worthless because all all their sense of validation has come from this position of power and how other people view them and the respect and perhaps honor, well, not so much anymore, that comes from the position of being a senator. And it just, they won't be Is able that how to you leave. read it? Is that how you no. read it, though? It's like a sort of psychological thing? I mean, you know, obviously there's a psychological component. I mean, McKay says it himself, right? But it's, it's there, there's something really worse there. And it's some sort of betrayal of the idea of self-governance in the sense that, you know, uh, to be a representative was never really meant to be a full-time job. And, okay, so fine, then it became a full-time job because it's inevitable in an advanced democracy that you have professional politicians over time. Fine. But then it just became like a tenured position to a certain extent. And yeah, yeah sure, it's psychological, but there, the the thing, it, it's it's not so much that I care what the hell goes on in... in Mitch McConnell's head or Nancy Pelosi's head or no, she's not in the Senate, but uh, Diane Feinstein's head, you know, it's it's like the psychological elements, not that it's that it's that we've created a class of professional politicians with tenure um, yeah. and that that's the rot, you know, uh, that that that, you know, why would they let go? Ultimately, it's not so much that. It's, I'm I'm sure they would feel that without the stimulation of the job and the rest of this, you know, they they and it's probably true. A lot of a lot of people when you know, especially if they've they've lived for their job once they retire and they have nothing to do, there I think at least there's a this old wives' tale anecdotally that people just like drift off and die after that. But that's not what's striking to me. Like what goes on in their head. It's more like it's more like we've created this and it's bad. Like none of that is good, you know? Um, and, and that gets at, at, at like these other debates that have been, you know, roiling this town, uh, this, this week about, about Biden's age and, you know, uh, not just Biden, obviously. I mean, I think we've all witnessed, uh, these recent really unpleasant, um, moments when Mitch McConnell, you know, has some sort of blank stare come over him and can't speak for for 30 seconds at a time um i don't know if you saw there was a clip of, of biden actually i think it was in vietnam uh he just started rambling at one point during his speech and his staff just basically put on the music over his speech and like the house <laughs> lights came on and it's like they they took him off the stage um and it's it's you know i mean we can talk about age and fitness but that's not it for me it's it's more like what is it institutionally that we've created that that creates this kind of like almost permanent tenure system in our politics where it like maybe belongs to the least, you know? Uh, yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, we were, we were, neither I, neither you nor I wrote it, but our, our uh, former colleague Derek Hudson wrote an early piece about old age and Biden uh, here at Wisdom of Crowds which we'll put in the show notes. It's so good. It's so good. It, yeah. And it was so ahead of its time. 
Um, I'm looking yeah. now. The date was December 4th, 2021. Yeah. So that well before, I mean, it's been almost two years since then. That's right. And only now are people really closely paying attention to this question as like a live issue. So, yeah, definitely give that a look. But I mean, I don't know, Shadi. Like, I, I, you, you know, you were you were talking about. I mean, let's maybe spend some time on 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 the Republican decay because the the hypocrisy of someone like Mitch McConnell definitely shines through in the McKay Coppins stuff. So maybe that's of interest that we sort of talk about, like hypocrisy in politics. But I also do want to get at this this question of of sort of you know a broader decay that that's going on here. Um, but you because you were getting Same exercised more- about. About 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 you know uh, where the Republican Party is right now at the start, and I, I sort of don't want to lose that because I think there's a lot of energy there. But uh, I don't know, like what what like was it so striking to you in there apart from you know just the sort of egregiousness of the you know the Trump maneuvers and that that whole period? Uh, you were you were more rattled than you were before reading it. Apart from just like the the high contrast that you got the image in, I mean, it was mostly known. We knew how these votes went. We knew that most of these people were hypocrites. Um, tell me more about like why you were so. Well, maybe exercised. it's just that when you when you shine the light on these cowardly politicians side by side, the kind of glowing sort of aura of Mitt Romney and his ostensible purity. I think it's the contrast that really captures this in a way that I hadn't, you know, fully processed in the past. Because what Mitt Romney reminds us is that we can we can be better. We can aspire to something more honorable. And it almost had me thinking really that if only Romney had won in 2012, uh, you know, and I hope well, I don't really care. I was going to say, I, I hope that listeners, you know, don't get too mad at me for saying that out loud. But I do think that in in many, in some ways, Barack Obama is similar to Donald Trump in that it's just very ego-driven. Everything is about the self. Everything ultimately is about Obama. And and I... I um. We republished a piece that I had written um, after reading Obama's memoir, which is called A Promised Land. And, you know, it's unclear what Obama really means by that title. I mean, the way that I read it was that he was the promised land or he he epitomized that, you know, this is, you know, and even even his famous um, exhortation to his followers, we are the ones we've been waiting for. There's a kind of self, there's just something so inward looking and kind of, anyway, it's just to say that the selfless, the selflessness that one sees in this kind of idealized vision of Mitt Romney is something that I long for. And I, I guess I'm realizing it's so rare that we don't even really think about it anymore as a possibility. And just to have it dangled in front of us as something that human beings are still capable of, that they should be capable of. I mean, it's just a really powerful reminder after having these like egocentric presidents for the last um, 12 years, not including Biden, I don't know how to classify Biden in this regard, but Obama plus Trump, it was so much about them as individuals. 
Um, I, but th this gets to my, to my question that I was sort of getting at before, why maybe I wasn't so moved by it, and maybe I'm just being overly cynical about it, but, but I, you know, I think Trump is a real outlier uh, in the sense that he really has no sense of uh, the country. Maybe that's unfair to Trump, but I, I think it's not. Um, I, I think that Obama's not that far out of the mainstream in the sense that, like, every president is driven by an outsized size of ego. And then when they ascend to the throne, they they do become sort of the country. And then they do start identifying themselves with this, you know, small number of men that have preceded them. Uh, as this like incredibly elite club that represent the country and are shepherding the country. But it's, you know, it's always a mix of, you know, like crazy ego and, and uh, that sense of service, where I, which I think basically in Trump got out of whack. And that's, that's what I, I, you know, I, I, that's why I, that didn't ring really true for mm. me on the on the Romney part. Um, that like that he was so pure and so so selfless. I never met the man. Give a uh, you know McCoppins, uh, McKay Coppins spent time with him, so you know clearly benefit of the doubt there. But at least in the writing, it didn't it didn't it didn't yeah. bowl me over in that sort of sense. You know that well, like we're recovering I, something. I have a bias. I have a bias, and it has to do with that. Mitt with Romney God. is a believer. Yeah. That yeah. that stuff affects me. Yeah. And no, fair enough. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like most of our presidents were believers. So again, George W. Bush was a believer. He did terrible things you don't like, some things you perhaps like. Uh you know, Bill Clinton was a was a was a church going man. Uh Okay, I wouldn't Nixon, describe Bill Nixon Clinton prayed. as a believer per se. I mean I'm sure he I'm sure he believed in God in some vague sense of it like a lot of people kind of do it going nixon prayed a lot you know what i mean like, really and yeah yeah, yeah yeah he would pray with with his wife uh pat nixon i think they, they would pray um and it's it's uh and yeah nixon for fuck's sake like talk about ego talk about ego wedded to a sense of some kind of you know responsibility for the country you know i brought it up before in the podcast that like incredible uh episode where he goes out on the on the mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial and tries to convince a bunch of hippies that, you know, he too is on their side trying to end the Vietnam War. <laughs> you know, like that 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 betrays some kind of sense of, you know, trying to represent the country, I guess. So I don't know, you know, I I uh it, it that felt a little overstated to me, I guess. But it it's that that like it's it's always been politics and politics is always nasty business. And those are the other parts in the Romney's sort of thing. Now, obviously, obviously impeachment is a, um, you know, a, a very important moment um, that people should take seriously. And clearly his colleagues were, uh, were, were glib and irresponsible with some of that stuff. At the same time, there's a, that passage, and since you have the article in front of you, you know, you, you, you can probably even find it, uh, but where he talks about, you know, uh, the solemn duty of serving on a jury as yes. if impeachment is not a political process, as if it's a legal process, which it's not, you know? And it's, it's, it's that bit of sort of like heavy handed, um, 
posturing is not the word I want to use. I don't want to be that harsh, but like that kind of heavy-handed um, posing pose that like I'm like meh, you know, I, I I don't know, it just doesn't 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 ring true. And we've talked about politics, right? And well, I guess what I I didn't love about the the Romney that comes out is that he's sanctifying politics in a weird way as some kind of transcendent calling. And, you know, I mean, it's something you and I talk about a lot. It's like everything is politics. And when we, we say that, we don't say to mean that, po- that like everything is holy, that actually everything is actually kind of cutthroat and kind of, and kind of zero sum in a lot of ways. Now, obviously it can't all be zero sum. It's not actual war, but Right? I mean, am I am I am I rambling in ways that don't resonate? No, at all? I think I think you're right. There's a there's a real danger of sanctifying politics and making it out to be something it's not. And this is, I think, where the question of hypocrisy becomes relevant. Um, and I've been reading about hypocrisy, you know, actually just in the, over the past week or two, quite a bit. And for anyone who's interested in diving into this realm. I would highly recommend Ruth Grant's Hypocrisy and Integrity and also David Runciman's book titled Political Hypocrisy. Mm. And, you know, it is interesting to note that there are scholars of hypocrisy. It's really a fascinating topic, and I, you know, it's worth delving into it. But, you know, it's interesting that, um, well, first of all, like from a religious standpoint, at least Islamically, the hypocrite is the worst of the worst. And I think that because we are still at, at, in some sense, a religiously oriented country, even as we secularize, that there still is this residual religiousness that Americans see the hypocrite as ter- worse than just a merely bad man. There's something about the betrayal of trust. There's something about doing one thing but saying another um, that Americans, I think, react very negatively to. So, but there's also, I think, you know, in Ruth Grant's book on hypocrisy, she has this line where she says, it is possible, after all, to be too good. And she actually makes the case that some level of hypocrisy is necessary and even more aligned with justice and virtue. That the anti the anti-hypocrite is so rigid and inflexible and so in love with his own righteousness and his own purity that ultimately it's inward looking. He he prioritizes his own moral purity over actually improving other people's lives. That's so Max something- Weber, right? That's a, that like ethics of responsibility versus ethics of yeah. conviction. So, but I, I mean, is it is it novel to say that that like democracy can't function without hypocrisy? So is Islam fundamentally undemocratic? <laughs> no, well, <laughs> so the hypocrites in the Islamic account are like a very particular group, and I wouldn't want to generalize that to all hypocrites. I think we mm-hmm. use the term now just more broadly. In in the Islamic account, we're talking about people who were actually a danger to the early Muslim community, a profound danger, because in in battle, when the Muslim community was fighting for survival— you didn't know if they would defect to the other side. You thought they were one of you, and then they they defect to enemy lines, basically. That, that's tra- That's betrayal, though. You know, 
different from hypocrisy. But they're hypocrites because they're saying that they're believers. They're yeah, pretending. Okay. They're offering up a pretense. So which hypocrisy I think is of the... faith, basically, rather than hypocrisy in politics necessarily. Yeah. So there's nothing. Exactly. So there's, it's not about necessarily about like lying. Well, lying isn't good. <laughs> well, again, though, but but necessary, perhaps, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yep. Well, tell me, in what context are you reading about hypocrisy this week? Like, why are you why are you chasing down this thread? Um, and 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 yeah, and what sure. Have you, what have you sort well, of gleaned from it? Well, just before I get to that, I'll just I want to just cite a really good Runciman quote from his book that I think um, he says, no one likes it, but everyone is at it, which means he's referring to hypocrisy here. No one likes it, but everyone is at it, which means that it is difficult to criticize hypocrisy without falling into the trap of exemplifying the very thing one is criticizing. That it's risky to be an anti-hypocrite because we're flawed human beings. Um, people will find things, discrepancies in our actions and rhetoric and so forth. Um, and it's also worth noting where the word hypocrite comes from. It comes from the Greek term um, hypocrisis, hypocrisis, I don't know how to pronounce it, whatever. But basically it was used to describe stage actors in theater. They were quite literally playing a part. And it wasn't even initially such a negative, pejorative word. It was actually just describing something that you saw in the theater. But I think that that etymology is really interesting because there's something that we're uncomfortable with when it comes to people who are inauthentic or we don't know if they're authentic. They're playing a part. They're acting. They're not showing us their true self. So I think that's at the core of it. Now, the reason that I'm focusing on this is um, hypocrisy as it relates to American foreign policy, which is different. Because usually when we think about hypocrisy, we think about individuals and virtue and morality on the level of a human being who's making certain decisions in the public arena. But how do we assess hypocrisy of a nation? A nation is not a human being. A nation is not a unitary actor. It's the collective result of millions of individual decisions. And so how do you really attribute intent to a nation the same way that you would attribute intent to a human being? So I think there's just like really interesting moral and political questions that come out of this. Um, but of course, at some basic level, every, everyone who is acting in politics is going to act hypocritically at least some of the time. And that's a good thing because hypocrisy, or at least the perception of hypocrisy, means that there's still a moral standard that we're using in judging our political figures. Because if we didn't have moral standards, no one would be a hypocrite. They would just be, oh, okay. They're violating their own their own rhetoric, whatever. So what? But the fact that we hold people to a higher standard or we want to or we hold our own country to a higher standard, that there's actually something good about that because you don't really hear people talking all that much about how um, China's, oh my God, the hypocrisy of China because no one really expects China to be like just and virtuous and to do good things and to treat people as actual human beings. No one, but, oh, come on, that's like, that's not 
how we view it. Yeah. But we, we do feel that way about our own country, and there's something good about that. We should feel that way about our own country, and we should hold our leaders to account, even if it's unrealistic that they're ever going to be totally virtuous. See, that's interesting. Um, I just I think it just it, it gets at maybe how differently on some level we approach these things. I mean, again, we know that we know these things and longtime listeners know these things as well, but um, I, I guess I don't expect the United States to be a moral actor on the, on the international stage, but we can bracket that. Let's, let's focus on the politics. Um, it's not virtue that I find lacking in uh, someone like Mitch McConnell. Um, it's just, it's, it's just short termism and stupidity, quite frankly. Um, there was a, I think it was after the second impeachment, um, he basically said something along the lines of, of uh, that, um, you know, it was like improper to impeach Trump on this, on these sorts of charges, but, you know, he will get his reckoning in a court of law. Um, I'm, I'm taking these, this, this insight actually from, um, uh, from, my colleague and our friend Jason Willick, who, who mentioned something like this, but to me, that's the uh, that's absolutely backwards. You know, it, it was impeachment where the party uh, should have politically taken not like moral responsibility, but control over its own destiny by trying to expel him. And someone like Mitch McConnell, who, uh, as we were just saying earlier, is now even like rendered speechless by his uh, by his old age and is clearly on his way out. Um, if you're not going to, if you're not going to try to rest, re-rest control of your own party away from someone who, you know, not only do you think perhaps is, is, uh, a morally, uh, vacuous person, but it's just really bad for your freaking political interests. You know what I mean? I think they all agreed on that. That comes through in the, in the McKay Coppins pretty well that Republicans, um, knew Trump is bad, but obviously felt trapped by the voters, but then, you know, couldn't make the judgment call, uh, to be like, let's just try and rid ourselves of him because, you know, if we don't, um, well, it, you, you might as well try because he's going to take over anyway, basically is the sort of idea. And so they did have, they had, they had two, they had two moments to do it. Um, and they chose not to, and it's not because justice was not served at those points because like again as i was saying and this is the part where i found like mitt romney's you know sort of uh sanctimonious talk about serving justice and you know this all that stuff sort of irrelevant as if this is a court of law um no i mean i think i think it's just i i i i look at at the republicans at the chances they had and what they've become as just signs of just incredible weakness and therefore i don't respect them like they 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 have earned everything that's come up to them right now uh due to their inability to do otherwise is really what it comes but down it's not to. weak and so yes weakness so so none of this none of this is I'm, I'm really like trying to pick my words here so i'm not making a moral case against this and why i have actually pretty deep contempt for the party at this point um and you know Part of part of the what what these people are are telling themselves is part of what I think you know uh, 
I think would echo things that you say about democracy and having faith in the people. They're like, well, we have faith in our voters. They're telling us they want someone like Trump. We can't decapitate Trump. This is the part where I guess what I'm getting at is leadership and like an inability to lead. And my own general skepticism of this idea that the crowds have any wisdom. They don't. And so, you know, you have you, you have a kind of this 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 kind of you know um really out of left field charlatan stride onto stage take over your party um and you just sit back that's the that's the part and that's the that's the rot to me it's not a moral rot it's it's kind of like it's it's decrepitude and it gets back to again what was most striking to me about that article it's 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 almost as if at a at our highest institutions there's a kind of just stench of decay. Yeah, Not but moral, decrepitude but a and stench decay, of decay has a but those things have moral components. Even when we think can, about but a, you, Yeah, like but we even you, think you about the I'm D sort of, word, other D words, decadence. And you know, right? I, I, I tried not to use that, but I tried not to use that word. That's why I'm really picking my words here, basically. Uh, and I, you know, that's why I was just such a halting uh, line of mine because I'm trying not to say moral words with moral valences and just express it all without reference to that. Um, and that's and that's the part about you know, hypocrisy doesn't bother me is what I'm getting at. You know, like basically saying one thing to get the people along and then. Uh, not exactly abiding by your word and then, you know, saying another thing and saying this is what you meant all along. That's just democratic politics. That's no, that's no, constituency no, no, no. pleasing. Up. That's constituency pleasing. That's building coalitions. That's getting stuff done with like a vision for what you think needs to be done. But, you know, honesty in politics, good Lord. I mean, no, 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 no. I expect okay. none of it. I got to push back on this because I think the kind of hypocrisy that we're talking about vis-a-vis the Republican Party and what comes out in the piece is, I guess you can call it rank hypocrisy. It's just so blatant and so unapologetic that it's unusually offensive. And Romney Romney reacts, so after January 6th, things are getting worse. The Republicans are losing their minds after there was some hope they'd come to their senses after the insurrection. They didn't. Romney says that he doesn't want to work with the hypocrites. He doesn't use the word hypocrites, but he's describing people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. He calls them the two smartest people in the Senate. And he's like, Josh Hawley knows what happened. Josh Hawley knows that the election wasn't stolen. Hmm. He knows that there was an attack on the Capitol. He knows these things. And this is what angers Romney more than anything else. They know the truth, but they are purposefully obscuring it. And he compares that to, I think, Senator Ron Johnson, I believe, who's apparently like a nutcase. And he's like, I'm going to make a decision to work with the nutcases because even though they're crazy, their craziness is sincere and deeply felt. Yeah. So I I don't know what you make of that. But I, I kind of like respect that, that distinction. Like Ron Johnson is like there's, Ron Johnson believes what he says, as far uh, as we can. 
Right. That again, that's the part that's not compelling to me. What's compelling to me is that like if if Ted Cruz and and Josh Hawley are so smart, um I, they, they just they're actually not that smart because they 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 actually not in control. They have not but been able to wrest control because they're cowards, not because cowards? they're not, not yeah. because they're stupid. But well, but they're, cowardice they're, they're, even, is a moral weak. It's it's a moral affliction. No, no, no. Cowardice is just like running away or like unable to take control is basically what it comes down to. Now, again, they 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 think that they can be Trump, but they can't. And when Trump's dead, you know, like they're not going to be able to fill those shoes because they're a bunch of little pipsqueak turds. You know, especially, especially, uh, like, I think, you know, Ted Cruz doesn't have the, any sense of that, that gravitas, you know, like the ability, he, he's a, he's a chameleon. And like a lot of these guys are chameleons is what it comes down to. And again, we've talked about this before, like Trump's greatest strength is the fact that, that like, he's real in a way that these guys aren't. And so, you know, again, it's, it's, there's, there's. There's plenty to admire Romney for, uh, you know, seeing where this is all going and trying to stop it for the good of the party and sure for the good of the country. But really, what it comes down to for me, it's 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 not a moral question. None of this is a moral question, and it's the moral grandstanding, or at least the moral self perception of of virtue here that I find not that compelling. I guess is what it comes down yeah. to. Yeah. Well, know? let me ask you this: I'm putting aside, well. This is something that I'm just kind of exploring off the cuff a little bit, but I'll, have, I'll probably have to develop it a little bit more. But I think that one of the things that makes Trump such a uniquely successful politician, despite all of his flaws, and what makes him, again, like surprisingly popular, at least among certain people, is that he is not a hypocrite. <laughs> he, well... He's no, not a hypocrite. No, 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 no. I think, I mean, he doesn't do one thing say, and say another. It's what you, he, there's no moral pretense. And the only way to have hypocrisy is if there's moral pretense. He has none right? of that. I mean, I, right. But it's, 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 I don't think that's exactly correct. It's that, uh, he is open about saying, I am just honest. Uh, and I'm as much of a crook as these guys. I'm just your crook. Um, yeah. I think that's the that's the line, and that doesn't make a claim for being non-duplicitous. I don't think he ever makes that claim, or doesn't say that you know he's not going to. He just hides it. And he's like, I'm just making deals. That's the other language, and people love that. They're like, oh yeah, you know, he's a deal, but he's you know cutting deals for me, or I guess that's a perception. Uh, even though that's not true, I think. I mean, he's really out for himself, you know. And but there's no again, playing apart. A- there's no hidden. There's no hiddenness with Trump. There is no because everything is performance with Trump. There is right. no performance, right? Or everything's performance with Trump. There's no there there. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's just like a hall of mirrors all the way down. He's just like he is a he is an infinitely manufactured and like amorphous thing. It's but just what's more conviction. authentic than, the, but that's in a weird way. There is a kind of authenticity to that. Yeah, in our weird postmodern world, I guess it's that kind of like postmodern authenticity of no authenticity. That like the ultimately inauthentic person is the most authentic person. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. Something like that. And that's why that's why I I I generally feel more angry feel more anger towards Obama even though like in terms of outcomes Trump well at least domestically Trump is a lot worse um than Obama but um is because Trump has never let me down because I've never expected anything from him Obama I was a believer like so many and I think that he violated a, a certain kind of trust no one would ever use that light. Like, no one's ever like, oh, I'm angry at Trump because he violated, like, that's why he, he's, like, infinitely able to command the support of his followers is because he's never he's never promised them morality or virtue. And he's very open about it from the beginning. He's like, I, can, I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and my people would still be with me. He was almost like, he was almost like, shoving it in their faces like you guys are going to follow me no matter what I do so I can do anything but there's an incredible amount a kind incredible kind of power that comes from that he's saying but, so, but you're a believer in Obama talk to me about your your relationship to Bush and maybe maybe you had no relationship to Clinton but like you know what I mean how much is this is just sort of uh partisan affiliation and like mood affiliation about like partisan good feeling that's it for part one dear listeners there's a lot more where that came from if you're not yet a paying subscriber please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one help support our work hope to see you in the bonus